Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. If you've ever left a meeting or an encounter wishing you'd handled it differently and spent the next two days replaying events in your mind over and over, my next guest is going to change your life. Chelsea Pottinger is the founder of EQ Minds and an international speaker on mindfulness and well-being. In this episode, we explore how to eliminate negative thinking to live a calmer, more productive life. And please note, this episode includes discussion about suicide, mental health, and perinatal depression. Chelsea Pottinger, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a privilege to be here with you today. Chelsea, so what does EQ Minds do? So EQ Minds is an educational platform that runs keynotes and workshops to empower employees to take care of their mental health and well-being. It's a mindfulness company and we also work around productivity and performance. So we have many speakers in our team now and we work in government and corporate and amongst schools too. I want to start by asking you how you came to launch EQ Minds. So my story probably sounds quite familiar to some of the listeners in that I used to be in the corporate world high-flying job, alcohol to take the edge off the stress, triathlon training to get up, 5,000 coffees, 12-hour day, very much that rise and grind, no rest days. That's kind of how we operated back then when I was in my corporate life. And then pretty unsustainable pace, to be honest. 2015 enters our gorgeous bundle of joy, Clara Ada Pottinger. And after giving birth to Clara, something really ironic happened to me, and that is Nine weeks post-birth, I actually end up in a psychiatric hospital fighting for my life. I was suffering severe postnatal depression. I had terrible suicidal ideation. And the safest place I could be was in a hospital bed. Now, I always think in life, you know, when you're faced with adversity like that, you kind of get to a fork in the road and you end up with two choices. And these were my choices. One, do I return back, pre-mental illness, to that fast pace in Sydney, that lifestyle, or two, do I learn and I grow from this gift that the universe has just served up to me? So at the end of the five-week stay at St. John of God in Burwood, my amazing psychiatrist, she said to me, Chelsea, you have this weird fascination with your brain. You're a really lovely person. And you've walked through the shoes of a very unwell patient. I think you'd be a lovely psychologist. So I thought, radio. <laughs> so I left. <laughs> I left Sydney. I moved to a small town on the New South Wales South Coast, that was seven years ago, I went back to university to study psychology because, to be honest, I never wanted anyone ever to end up where I had, which was in a hospital bed. 
And so 2016, I founded the company EQ Minds. And, and I'm really proud to say, Helen, that in that period of time, we've trained about a million people across the globe. So I look back now on that intense adversity with a sense of gratefulness. What do you think was the key to your success in terms of, I mean, you, you make that pivot sound pretty seamless and I'm going to guess it wasn't, but what do you think is the thing that you were really good at to connect so quickly with people? I think, you know, with EQ Minds, we're very big in the corporate world. And I think a couple of things. One is that I've lived and breathed their world for over a decade. So I really truly understood their pain points. Two, walking through the shoes of a very unwell patient, I could really empathize then with mental illness and this passion that I had. So in audiences, we connect very well with the audience because we're very vulnerable with that with that story and, and that share. And the third thing I think is studying psychology and being exposed to really, really brilliant cutting-edge research at university. We get to share that now with the corporate world, these really practical science-based tips and tools that people can embed straight away so they never end up where I had, which was in that hospital bed. And I think the main ingredient is that we have a lot of fun doing it. Like we're trained by comedians. We are trained by, you know, speakers, coaches, and I just love it. And I always think if I come into this event and whether there's thousands of people sitting there at the ICC at the audience or it's a group of eight in a small executive room, I always think if I can impact one person in this room, what a success that would be. I want to go back, if you don't mind, and if it's not too much to ask of you, to being in the hospital, what led you there? Like, how did you get there? Did you, was it that high achieving life that you'd previously had? Do you partly blame that? Or do you acknowledge that it's an illness and it could happen to anyone? I think it's a combination of things, to be honest. I think for me, I had a genetic vulnerability there from one of my parents, which was not known because that parent hides behind a mask of their own mental illness. I wasn't aware. Two, I think, you know, I did have trauma uh, by knocking my head, falling down the stairs a few years prior to having Clara and that kind of onset anxiety for me. And I saw a psychologist at the time to get treated. However, in saying that, I was oblivious to perinatal anxiety and depression when I fell pregnant because I was so elated when we finally fell pregnant with Clara because it took us six years to try and have a baby and I really wanted her. So I just completely ignored any kind of pre-mental illness or anxiety. I was just too excited. And then I think three is that sense of type A or triple type A high-functioning human being that was used to kind of performing at a certain level and... So I think when your identity shift changes from the corporate career and being able to do things in a particular way into motherhood where you've been given a baby and you have this chemical imbalance on day three that happens and then all of a sudden it's not a textbook that you can just follow and and tick the boxes of and I felt like I was failing because I couldn't breastfeed and then I had insomnia and anxiety and, and it just spiraled just out of control like so rapidly. And I was uneducated and I wasn't aware, even I didn't even know about the Gidget Foundation. And that 
that breaks my heart that the younger Chelsea just wasn't aware of that kind of stuff to get into such a state of contemplating taking my life to then having to be admitted straight into a hospital unit because it wasn't safe for me to be in the public. I also imagine that process of digging yourself out of that, you had medical help, but how long did that take you? It took a while. You know, the hospital stay was five weeks and that was to get the medication right and also to see a psychiatrist and psychologist on the books there. And then I had to do a lot of deep work because I had a lot of shame and guilt for suffering something like postnatal depression. And my psychiatrist, she was just so incredible. She actually encouraged me to go to the Nan Tin Temple down near Wollongong, Mm. uh, down near where we live now. And she's like, I want you to go there and spend months with the Buddhist monks and learn about loving kindness, compassion, meditation. What a legend. Wow. So I did that. And while I was practicing and learning that skill, one of the monks said to me, you know, Charles, the reason why you had to go through what you went through was to get to this true calling. And that was another penny drop moment for me of not only my psychiatrist encouraging me to take on psychology to help others, but then there was these other messages coming through going, hey, do you know that sometimes you have to go to these depths of adversity to get to these other opportunities and to see this as a period of growth? And so having a really great network around me, my husband was so supportive. I had amazing family and friends moving from the city to the small country town to live this calmer lifestyle, eating clean, changing my sleep hygiene, learning how to meditate, then becoming a meditation coach. So there's a lot of deep work that I did. And it probably wasn't until Clara was one that I'm like, you know what? I'm just, I've always been a happy person but I'm such a calmer version of my previous self and I feel so fulfilled. And when I was starting up EQ Minds, I said to my husband, darling, everything I'm learning at university and and in these courses, imagine if the corporate world knew what I knew. And if you reflect back, 2016, mindfulness wasn't even really a thing here in Australia. And he said, oh, yeah, darling, I think that could have some merit. I think that could go well. And he just thought it was a cute hobby. (laughs) He's like, you never have to work again. But he's like, how happy it was making me of training the Jerengong Rotary Club and training the local hospitals. And he could just see my eyes light up. And so he's like, you just do that. That's a really lovely hobby you got going on on the side. (laughs) (laughs) And now you can buy and sell him. (laughs) You don't have to answer that. Um, There are many women in the same circumstances that you're in who struggle to find their way through this process, let alone come out in the shape that you're in. What advice do you have for anyone who's listening today and is going, I've been through exactly the same set of circumstances, but I don't sound like Chelsea Pottinger? I think it's about building up our self-efficacy. And when I think about that question... The most important thing is that if you ever go through something like that, like grief or loss or trauma, is that you get the experts around you to recover through that period of grief and loss. So if you're going through something like postnatal depression like myself, you must get an expert team around you to transition out of that. And one of the techniques that my psychiatrist did for me to help me build up my self-efficacy, and this is for people listening who feel like they're stuck, I think this is a really helpful tool is one, if you think about a time in your life where you've had to face it with perseverance and motivation and grit 
maybe something that you never thought you'd get through, but you came through the other side, then if you think about that moment, I'm going to now ask you to jot down these journal prompts. One, what did I learn from that experience? And then two, how did I grow? And I think they are both exceptional things to ask yourself. Because if you can see any form of growth or learning in these traumas, it's incredible as a human being to experience that. And so if you're feeling stuck, find hope, optimism stories around you. Go get Sheryl Sandberg's book, Option B. You're going through postnatal, go get Jessica Rowe's book around that. Or my book, The Mindful High Performer. That's a bit of a plug. But you need to find (laughs) these people that you can relate to that have been through what you've been through and can get through the other side. And I'll just add to that that if expert help is not an option, Gidget Foundation, incredible, incredible work. Chelsea and I share a friend at the Gidget Foundation um, in the CEO. She's also done a podcast with us, Arabella Burge. I'd also recommend Beyond Blue and all of those organisations. Please do give them a try. This is a tricky question to ask and I don't know if I'm going to phrase it correctly, but it's absolutely a truth that your failures or your difficult moments in time do lead to growth and I hear it all the time. But if I think about it, there's a bit of me that goes, I never, ever want to go that into those dark spots again. So how do you have a conversation with someone who is there or on their way there and you know that it's going to lead to growth, but that's the last thing that is really helpful to be told at that point? Oh, absolutely. So how do you navigate that conversation? Like you, you, you know it's going to be good, but how do you help them through it in a way that doesn't sound like a <laughs> Hallmark card? It's a great question. And I think when people are spiralling, when they're really unwell, the last thing I want to hear is, you know, you'll be right. Yeah. This is going to be good for you. Yeah, this, it's meant to be all of those lines, right? This is the universe. Yeah. Coming universe. to give you a gift. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely Go not. Away. That, yeah, <laughs> we would get punched in the face, I'm sure. Uh, so I think, you know, instead it's that whole thing of saving the space for someone and, and giving them that love and support. And also I think a key thing that was big in my recovery was these hope optimism stories of where someone would drop me in Jessica Rose's book into the hospital And so I was reading stories about other people who'd been where I had and they had recovered. So I think hearing it from someone that you can relate to that has been where you've been and that gives you a lot of hope and a lot of optimism that you also can recover. But when someone's in the depths of it, I think just wrapping your arms around them going, this is so hard. So hard. So hard and I'm here for you and I love you and I'm not going anywhere. And then the recovery starts. And I think it's also really important for people who are ambassadors for Beyond Blue or Are You OK or the Gidget Foundation or they actually won't take on any ambassadors or speakers six months after the event because it's too triggering for that person. You have to be completely healed and recovered and removed enough from that story where you're in a place now to help others. 
Otherwise, it kind of sets you back. Right. We went down a whole line of questioning that I hadn't planned on. So I'm going to bring it back to um, a couple of things that I really wanted to explore with you today. And one of them is that moment at night, usually when your brain is running hot, you've had something that occurred during the day or is occurring in your life and you cannot get it out of your head. You replay it over and over again. And even if you've done some mindfulness and some meditation, you know that it should stop and you should stop it. What do you do and what do you advise? Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic question. I think it happens to everyone. You know, if I said, oh, I don't have that anymore, that would be a lie. I think when my vessel is tired, like for example, last week I did 10 keynotes in the week and I was in Hobart one day, Gold Coast the next day, Melbourne the next day. So I was doing a lot of travel. I was sleeping in a different hotel room every night. I had to sometimes order in Uber Eats just because I was getting to the destination too late. And that's when I know that I kind of can see I'll spiral into a bit of a busier mind before bed. But the good news is that I do now have the tools to be able to help with that. So something that I do if you've got a busy mind and you're listening and, and my psychiatrist taught me this and I've learned about it at university is that at nighttime, particularly if you're trying to go off to sleep, so I think that's a really big time that people have this busy active mind and they just can't get themselves off to sleep. And so a couple of key things that are very, very helpful that I found helpful in my own life as well is one, journaling things down onto paper is so cathartic for the brain, like getting it out of the hippocampus, dumping it onto some paper so your brain can go, okay, I've captured that. Let's check it out tomorrow when I've got more serotonin on the, on the books in my brain. I've got better things to do right now, like go to sleep. So number one, get it down onto some paper. Number two, then you want to do things that are kind of off your screen and that are helping relax the brain out of this really busy beta brainwave of high stress and to try and get you down as close to delta as you can to get you off into a deep sleep. So reading a paperback book, one that's not on a screen, fiction to escape is great. It could be the fact that you're doing any kind of journaling of gratitude or anything like that. It could be listening to a sleep-guided meditation. I find Andy from Headspace is absolutely brilliant. You know, I love his voice. My husband will say to me, uh, can you get Andy out of the room? I'm like, you get out, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> Andy's staying right here. Uh, and so finding things that help you shift the gear and change your brain in real time to get you into a deeper sleep. During the day, it's different. You know, if you get triggered by something, say someone speaks over you in a meeting or someone <laughs> sends you an all-caps email or someone sends you a passive-aggressive email, and you get triggered. And before we come in guns blazing and fire back of let them know what we really think about them, we need something in that moment to shift, right, our thinking processes. And so, again, like this is just a beautiful technique that I learnt and it's, we call them transitions. And so what it would be a part of is, one, you do some kind of breath work, right, to downregulate the system, to get your kind of prefrontal cortex, the front part of your brain back online, so you're kind of more rational. Uh, box breathing is great, where you just inhale for four, hold for four, exhale for four, hold for four. But then while you're doing that technique, what I really encourage your listeners to do is inside their mind, say these words, release, 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 release. And then at the same time, visualize that you're 
body is sort of relaxing. So it's almost like this progressive muscle relaxation. So it could be for people a big shoulder roll. It could be that they're imagining that their jaw is unclenching, their eyes are soft. And it's almost like this beautiful kind of micro shower for the brain. And so when they transitioned into the next chapter of the day, they've changed their state and they've kind of dropped that excessive, you know, ruminative feedback loop. I sometimes wonder, though, if that excessive loop is doing something positive. I genuinely think if I'm, if I'm playing it over and over and over, then there is either a lesson in that that I need to learn, I either whatever it is that I did that's bothered me so much, I need to never do it again, <laughs> or that I'm trying to find a solution that is difficult to find. Is there, is there any moment where you think, actually, just go with it because there is something in that process that's potentially positive. I think the brain's really magnificent in terms of it has this negativity bias to look out for things that will keep us alive. And I think that's why it gets, you know, it it grabs the attention of those kinds of things like, you know, these worrying feedback loops or we get drawn to particular things on the news and, and it does that to keep us alive so we can spread our genes and our genetics, you know, survive. I feel like if it's derailing people during the day where it's taking you away from your focused work, where it's taking you away from being mindful in a conversation, where it's impacting your sleep, I think that's when it can get quite dangerous. We get stuck, right, in these feedback loops. And I always say to people, you know, if you've got these practical tools around you and you try them out and they're still not working for you, go and see a therapist go and see a psychologist, go get someone around you who can teach you cognitive behaviour therapy because life as we know it is, it's short. And so instead of being all the time up in our head, we kind of want to spend as much time as we can living in the moment. I do also feel like, I don't know if you feel like this, Helen, but as you do get older, I feel like you get a bit less of it. Like you just, maybe it's the realisation, you know, I read that book, The Five Regrets of the Dying, and then I looked at some research around regrets of the dying and, <laughs> and one of them, one of them out of the five is, I wish I wasn't as hard on myself as what I was. And I think what happens is as you get older, the inevitability of dying becomes more apparent. And so what we realise is that when we say something stupid in the day or maybe we've made the wrong investment or we haven't done something that we wish we had, I think we just realise that it's not that important, you know, and life, life is short and things that we think will matter in that moment, it just doesn't matter. And I, I really feel like there's something liberating in that as you get older to kind of just not care so much. <laughs> I think the other thing you realise when you get older is that there are just standard mistakes that you make in life, right? <laughs> and you want to be better than that and not make the boring mistakes, but you kind of do anyway. So, okay, so I made all of those absolutely standard mistakes in my 20s, 30s and 40s. I'm going to make the same ones in my 50s and 60s that Mm. people in their 50s and 60s make. So just giving yourself a break. Mm -hmm. Although I don't like making too many mistakes, I have to admit. I don't (laughs) like that very much. But I think I made an awful lot of them. Um, The other thing that you talk about and I want to explore is how to live a calm life. What does that mean to you? 
So my psychiatrist when I was in hospital, I mean, she was so incredible. She said to me as I was recovering, as about week four, so I was starting to get my old self back. And she said to me, Chelsea, in the future, how do you want to feel? Not what do you want to have? How do you want to feel in this life? And I said to her, I want to feel calm. I want to feel less anxiety. I want to feel a sense of peace and a sense of contentment. And she said, great, because every goal from now on is going to be aligned to that feeling. And so I moved from Sydney to a small country town to live a calmer lifestyle down there. I went back to university to study psychology, to learn tools to become calmer. I started a company to help other people to help them become calmer. The people I spend time with, my friendship circles, the person that I'm married to, they're very positive and they're very calm influences. The content that I read, the shows that I watch, all these kinds of things, they're aligned to that. And for people listening, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to, you know, align to calm. For you, the way that you feel or the feeling that you're chasing, it could be success or it could be invigorated or it could be energized or whatever that is for you. But I really believe that that helps us shift from external validation to really be true to what your internal values are and how you want to carry out this life. When you're talking to rooms full of corporate people, I imagine when you walk into that room, there is no sense of calm. <laughs> like, how would you, I mean, how would you characterize a, a room of men and women? in corporate Australia who have come to hear you speak when you step onto that podium? The feelings that I get are high energy. There's a lot of buzz. There's a lot of busyness. There's a lot of frazzle. (laughs) But you can shift that. And I think, you know, there's this whole thing around emotional contagions in research and the way that we turn up to events and the way that we are in this life. I know this isn't very COVID appropriate, Helen, but it's almost as if we psychologically sneeze onto each other's brain all day. That's what we do when we see each other. We're just contaging our mood across to somebody else. If I turn up really highly stressed and, you know, with really uh, energy that's not aligned to mine, the audience will feel that. That's not authentic to who I am. But also I hope that they also pick up that sense of calmness from me too. and. It's an interesting thing, I feel, that, you know, high performers, because we train a lot of executives, we train government, we train the defence force, we we train so many different types of people. I was on the farm last week working with John Deere. You know, like it's just such a diverse group of people that we train. I love that. And I think there's this juxtaposition almost in terms of the high performer or being productive and being calm, like I feel like people feel like they're opposing forces. Yeah. And they don't have to be. They don't have to be. No, you talk about a more productive life through calmness. Mm. Because I think, you know, inevitably we're going to face so much stress in this life. Life is discombobulating. We've seen that over the last couple of years. We're going to have big goals. We're going to get pulled from pillar to post. We're going to have change around us all the time. Interest rates are going to go up. There's going to be world crisis. We have got so much change and stress coming at us every single day. However, if we have strategies to train the brain to keep us nice and calm and as less reactive as we possibly can be, what happens there is that the amygdala gets quieter 
So we become less reactive, we're less stressed, we're more in the moment, we're less quick to rise to anger. Not only now is the amygdala, the stress, anxiety kind of part of the brain quieting down, but now we can tap into the hippocampus, which is our memory center. So we have this more rapid recall retention rate. And then when we're doing that, the prefrontal cortex is now online, which is the part of our brain that separates us from the animals. So we can think and create and plan. And I've lived both lives. I've lived the life without the calm brain. (laughs) (laughs) And now I'm living the life with the calmer brain. And I can tell you right now, the creativity that I have and the productivity, the output that I have is just exceptional compared to the lifestyle that I used to live. So I think everyone listening right now wants to know, what is a day in the life of Chelsea Pottinger look like? <laughs> like what, what happens when you get up and what time do you get up? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very obsessed with sleep. You know, if my sleep goes, my mental health goes. And that's the thing that I know about myself. I've, I don't have the fractured gene that people can function off six or seven hours and be okay. If I miss two nights of really good sleep, like plus seven hours, I can see myself starting to spiral. Right, so my sleep, the way I feel today, it started last night in bed. So I am super protective of my sleep. I am down and out at 9.30. I've got a really good half an hour pre-sleep routine before I go to bed. So when I wake up, I'm feeling good. So I usually wake up around 6, 6.30, depending on if I'm at home and our daughter wakes us up. But we're all larks in our house. We're early to bed, early to rise. And so wake up, I've got a pretty... Uh, not intense morning routine, but a disciplined morning routine that I really like. And so things like I don't check my phone when I first wake up. I do not let this world in to dictate how I should start my day because I can promise you right now the way you set up those first few minutes will set the tone, right? Like you look at a murder on your newsfeed first up, you're not jumping out of bed doing fist pumps going, yes, today's going to be a cracker. (laughs) Like you're feeling that pain, so I just don't do that. I, I put my phone down. I lay in bed. I practice some gratitude. I then open up the curtains. I get the sun in on my eyes. To That's a reason being to kind of set the circadian melatonin for that night. I usually say something like, today is going to be a beautiful day or today is going to be a really good day. And then I do the normal things that every other human being does, you know, go to the toilet, brush teeth. I brush my teeth with the opposite hand. I learned that from a friend of mine, Dr. Daniel Amen, who's a great psychiatrist. Uh, I do that because it changes my dexterity in my brain. So it's a beautiful way to challenge my brain and, and get some nice neurogenesis going on in there. And it's a mindful technique too. <laughs> then I smash a big water, you know, I'm dehydrated from sleeping. That's because we all sweat when we sleep. So that's a nice human being thing. <laughs> we sweat when we sleep, we breathe, we wake up dehydrated. So lots of good clean water. Then I move the body. I take Clara usually on that because I think children are exceptional at role modelling. I mean, I mean, we're exceptional role models for them, so they're always observing us. They're like sponges. So fitness is a big part of our family's life. We ride the bikes. We might go for a surf, hit the gym and lift weights. She doesn't lift weights. <laughs> she's only seven. <laughs> but she's there, you know, jumping around on the Swiss ball. Then we'll get home. We'll have a coffee for sure. I love coffee. And then uh, I'll have breakfast and I'll usually meditate before I kick off my work day. And then I sit down and I think about what's the most important task I need to get done for the day. I don't even actually open up emails until I do that. I sit there and think, okay, what's the most important task for EQ Minds today? What's going to have the biggest impact for our company and on people? 
And then two, when am I scheduling in my mental health and physical health breaks? And because the truth, I think, is if we don't schedule that stuff in, it doesn't get done. We get swept up into the business of the day and we just don't get to it. So I pop it into the calendar so the team can see it. Oh, Chelsea's got a meditation at 2 p.m. Let's not book in a podcast, an interview, anything there. Let's honour that for her. Uh, And I'll always make sure I'm exercising every day. And then my day is usually two keynotes a day. So that's my boundary. That's my max. I don't take on any more than that. Uh, We're booked out for the next four months, but we will not budge on that because the audience, I want them to have a great experience. And also I really protect, well, my husband really protects me and my mental health. And then the rest of the day is kind of buffered out, you know, with content creation, study, podcasts, uh, running the business. And then 3.30, car comes in the front door and usually the tools are down if I'm at home and I'm with her. And so then I'll go back, you know, she might, we might have dinner and if I need to get some more stuff done, I'll do that. But I'll always make sure that I'm putting her to bed, reading her stories. And I'm, as I was saying before, I'm off the screens at nine. That is just fantastic. I'm so glad I asked that question. I'm <laughs> so glad I didn't let you leave the studio without asking that question. Um, and I think I get about 10% of that. The sleep bit, yes. The early morning bit, Yes maybe one or two other things. (laughs) Do you feel vulnerable at times to that descent into a mental health spiral? Mm. Yeah. So it's never left you or is it just fear that it could happen? It's not fear. It's the actual reality of my life. Once I've been triggered by that genetic expression of suffering postnatal, this is a journey until 105. That's my target age when I die. (laughs) But it's that whole thing around, I know that if I do not treat myself well, I don't do these things that I'm disciplined with, I can spiral. Another huge thing, Helen, that I'm really honest about is taking medication. You know, my team, my psychiatrist, my psychologist, my integrative doctor and my doctor, I've got the most incredible weapons in my team. And twice now they've tried to take me off medication after going through postnatal in a really safe way, very, very safe way. And both times, and even though I've got all these tools in my toolkit and I research this stuff every day and I'm a mental health ambassador and I talk about it every single day, my body just cannot produce enough serotonin. And both times I've relapsed six to nine months post going off complete medication. And so I now know that about myself. And I've been very honest in my community when I've had a relapse. I've had to pause the company. I've had to take a month off to fully recover because as I explained to people, when you have a mental illness, if you push yourself too hard, you'll get a laceration in your brain and you need to recover. It's the same thing with athletes. If they push themselves too hard and they, you know, do a knee injury, they need to take time off to heal the knee. If they keep pushing it, they're never going to recover. And I've learned that now that If I go off medication, I will relapse. My body really needs serotonin. And my psychiatrist said to me the other day, are you okay just to be on this for the rest of your life? And I'm like, never take me off it, (laughs) ever. (laughs) It works. It works. I am so, you know what it is? It just helps me function at the same level as every other human being. 
Isn't that fair? Like, don't I deserve that? And I think about that, people who are listening right now who have tried everything, you know, you've got your meditation, you're eating clean, you're sleeping well, you're getting vitamin D, you've got good social connections and your anxiety is through the roof or you've got low mood because of your depression, go and speak to the experts. Go and see your doctor, go and see your psychiatrist and get some extra help. And there's nothing to be fearful of. And I think that conversation needs to change. Here, here. You mentioned earlier, I just wrote it down. I didn't know when to ask you this. So I'm just going to ask it on me now. Triple type A. <laughs> what? I mean, I know a type A, but what does a triple type A look like? <laughs> I just refer to that as people who go into beast mode all the time and don't take, you know, they work hard, they party hard, they work out hard. And that was kind of my life pre-mental illness, pre-St. John of God I just did everything to extreme. I think in your 20s, you kind of feel a bit invincible that you can live like that. It's just such an unsustainable pace. I feel so inspired by the future generation coming through. We've got some beautiful people in our team who are 25 and they just treat themselves so much better than what I did. They do. Same in my team. They're very sensible. Very sensible. Very dialed in about the environment, very dialed in politically, and very dialed in about their mental health. And I just, I just love that. Mm, yeah, me too. I've often pondered about the quality. Um, in fact, we did an amazing interview in this room with um, Professor Ray Cooper, who just talked about her optimism about the young women of this country and how educated and dialed in they are. Um, any last pieces of advice for the young women who are listening to this today who your story resonates with and who are looking to kind of calm the mind and potentially still have a successful career and private life? Mm-hmm. I think if you ever go through any kind of setback or change or challenge or uncertain times... I think a really good reminder to people is that when you're going through that, those challenging times, if you can remind yourself that's where the grit lies, I hope that they don't go through those periods of times. But if you do find yourself in a trench or you do find yourself going through a, you do, if you if you come out the other side, it's those moments that you do have those really incredible post-traumatic growth experiences. And there's a great documentary out there that I'll leave the audience with It's called Stutz, S-T-U-T-Z. And Jonah Hill interviews his incredible psychiatrist. And Stutz talks about there's three things in life that are certain. One is pain, one is uncertainty, and the third one is constant work. And the constant work are the tools that you'll learn on this journey in your toolkit that will either nullify or at least expedite your flex or return back from these traumas and uncertain times and adversity. And so without that, without the pain and the uncertainty, there is no potential to grow as a human being. And so that's a really great documentary for people to watch. He's also got some fantastic tools on there. And so I think my final message as a billboard, which is my new billboard, if, you know, last year it was self-care isn't selfish, it's self-preservation. But this year it's different. It is your mental well-being is your superannuation. And the reason why it's that now is because I was at a retreat last year at Gaia. I take a break every six weeks and I take 
four to five days off the grid. It's a part of my culture and life. And I was up at Gaia and I was talking just to some people in finance and they were talking to me about shares and investing in property, which was really great. And we do that as a family. And everyone's so obsessive about their super and investments. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, I understand that. And I think people are so obsessed about it is because it's to take them to the end commercially, right? Financial security to the end. And then I was sitting there thinking, hang on a second, why aren't we investing in this, our mental health and our physical health, when this is the vessel? This is what it's going to take us to our very last breath. If you do not invest into your home where you live, where are you going to live? You've got nowhere else to live. So please take care of yourselves. We're right here at EQ Minds to support your journey. And I hope that you start changing your mindset on that your mental well-being is your superannuation. Chelsea Pottinger, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Helen. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.